Welcome to season two of Lean Startup Company podcast series. I'm Heather McGough, co-founder of Lean Startup Company, where we share lean startup and modern management techniques to a growing community of entrepreneurs and corporate innovators. We produce webcasts, podcasts, original content, our annual Lean Startup Conference, and offer live and virtual training in the enterprise. Whether you're building a high-growth tech startup, a mobile app, a piece of hardware, working in a nonprofit, or a large bureaucratic organization, adopting Lean Startup methodology can help support continuous innovation and sustainable growth. Today's guest is Munir Zak. Munir is a senior sports technologist with the U.S. Olympic Committee. He has served as the senior sports technologist at the United States Olympic Committee since November 2012. In his current role, he leads and manages the development of innovative sports technology solutions for U.S. Olympic and Paralympic sports programs. With more than 10 years of experience in wearable technology, he has a comprehensive background in human-centered design and lean development principles. Prior to joining the USOC, Zach served as Technical Director of Sensorize Technology and Rehabilitation in Italy, where he led a team in developing sport technology applications. Thanks for being with us today, Monir. Thank you for having me. Let's start with learning a bit about work that you do. Can you explain what it means to be a technologist with the U.S. Olympics? Um, you know, working with the U.S. Olympics is really working with the best team um, on earth. Uh, being a technologist is quite a challenge. Um, it's figuring out how can we push the envelope with technology so that um, our coaches and our athletes are able to make more informed decisions and are able to gain better insights regarding, uh, for example, how does an athletic body perform under certain situations. Uh, Being a technologist over here is really a mixture um, among being, on one hand, a product developer, being a project manager, being a business developer. Um, There is no routine. Uh, There is no um, sort of sitting behind a desk and doing the same thing over and over again, uh, which is the beauty of it. I read that you began your career in scientific research and started a company called Sensorize that filled the gap between sports and rehabilitation. What did you learn during that time that has helped you in your role with the Olympics? You know, um, I have been very lucky to have gone through several experiences that uh, led me to where I am today and before joining the Olympic Committee. So as you started, I started uh, I started out with uh, scientific research, and when you're working with research, you really can afford um, sort of trying out all different techniques and developing all different kinds of algorithms and developing different kinds of hardware to then determine you know where can this lead you. It's not really a focused approach, not an approach that necessarily has a very very uh, narrow end in mind, but it's rather an exploration of the possibilities. When I started uh, my company, um, I began learning what it means to develop for people, what it means to develop uh, a product that um, had an impact on people's lives. It was a big struggle in the beginning because I was approaching it as, as, as a researcher. You know, As an engineer, you learn how to solve problems, you learn how to identify your problems, and um, that is exactly the route that, that I took. Now, after some uh, 
painful um, experiences, I began discovering that whatever my company was developing was really um, a very, very good product that answered lots of our technical questions. But it was not a product that was designed for um, satisfying a need that was coming out of the customers and out of the market. So from a technical perspective, um, whenever we did not see the, let's say, the sales um, hitting the targets that we had uh, forecasted initially, we would shut the doors down, we would get all of our team gathered together again, we would reinvent the software or reinvent the hardware, and then after enormous resources spent and countless days uh, passed and lots of caffeine, we would open up again and um, you know, hoping that we would have better revenue this time, but that did not happen either. So one of the biggest lessons that I've learned is that um, I needed to go out onto the market and I needed to begin engaging with, with my customers. And what I found out was very astonishing. Now, with, what we found out with Sensorize was that the reason why the company was not selling as much as we thought it would had nothing to do with technology, had nothing to do with the software, had nothing to do with the hardware. There was there was uh, more of a social element to the um, to the question, and we were not able to identify that just by sitting uh, around a table and gathering, you know, all the excellent uh, skill sets that we had. Um, so, so the biggest lesson that I got from that was to begin um, talking to our customers ever since day one and never spend any resource unless we can confidently say that we have learned valuable lessons directly from our customers that contribute to, um, to the product development. So you know, so so prior to getting to the Olympic Committee, I got molded, if you want, uh, on on my pathway. Um, I learned lots of valuable lessons. I had to learn them on my own um, expense. Um, on one hand, unfortunately, but on the other hand, uh, I'm happy that uh, that I did that. Um, so right now, you know, as I'm working for the Olympic Committee. Um, you know, one of the critical elements that we always make sure in any kind of work that we're doing over here is um, keeping coaches and athletes in the picture ever since they won. So I have to admit that uh, I, I did a little bit of reading about you uh, before the show, and there was a gentleman named Daniel Galan who had written uh, a really fun article uh, about you and, and your work, and he had mentioned uh, the Jetsons, and The Jetsons was a show uh, back on TV, and it, it um, they envisioned this utopian future where mankind used space-age technologies like robots and flying cars, and, um, you know, he mentions how humans have always been fascinated with what the future holds, and uh, goes on to say that according to Moore's Law, every 12 to 18 months, computers double their capabilities. Um, and so it was really interesting to hear about, you know, your work and kind of how this relates or doesn't. <laughs> um, I wanted to ask you, you know, there was a really fascinating interview on NPR about sneaker technology and how it changes the way that athletes perform. What technologies do you think are changing sports these days? Well, you know what? It's it's very funny that Daniel Galan wrote about the Jetsons. Um, I did not bring this up with him, but I use the Jetsons almost in every presentation I make. Now, oh, it, you it's do? Just, it's just so fi futuristic. And just thinking that 
you know, it was a bunch of animators who came up with this in the 60s is is mind-blowing. It's really, really mind-blowing. Um, talking about I mean, what technologies I believe are changing sports these days, um, you know, I believe that there are three very, very interesting avenues in technology that we are just scratching the surface of today. The combination of the three, once we get to a mature level, will reshape the sports like we have never seen them before. Um, the first category would be what we can call smart sensors or you know, what, what today is known as wearable technology. Now, we are finally at a stage where collecting data from a moving body is not a challenge anymore. Now, when I started my company, Sensorize, back in 2007, we had no smartphones on the market. You know, so, so, so getting small sensors that could be packaged inside devices that had a portable battery and some wireless communication uh, features to it was, was quite a big challenge. You know, fast forward eight years, we take that for granted. You know, we have just a plethora of... Um, devices out there that are so, so small. I mean, they're small as, as an earphone. And they have got GPSs and accelerometers and batteries and wireless transmission protocols and some security encryption on top of that. It's, it's, it's amazing where we are today. And then if we add to that another category, which um, has to do with all of the machine learning or artificial intelligence algorithms that we can develop to begin extracting some intelligence out of that data. You know, measuring data just for measuring data is, is not going to take us anywhere. We need to always start with, with a question in mind. You know, what are we after here? Once we determine that, then we can develop algorithms that would help us extract the, um, the information inside from, from that data. We are at a very good point also from that today. You know, we can run um, artificial intelligence algorithms not only on, on a device, on a physical device, but we can run that on a cloud and have sort of data shooting up to cloud and then information coming back down. The third layer that I would add on top of that is what is referred to today as the um, Internet of Things, whereby we are heading towards a more connected world that will be able to shape itself according to what the needs are. If we think about sports, for example, Think about um, being in a position where a training venue shapes itself according to what the physiological needs of the athletes who are residing in it right now require. Whether that is modification of light, whether that is modification of sound, whether that is modification of temperature, of humidity levels, you name it. You know, We will get there very soon. And that will open up... Um, you know, a whole new area of interpreting spaces, not only as areas where athletes train or areas where athletes sleep or, you know, let's say buses where athletes get onto, but we will interpret those as physical spaces that contribute to the eventual success of the athletes who are residing in them. So I believe the combination of Smart sensors, machine learning, and internet, the Internet of Things is going to change sports. The wearable tech market is a, estimated to be a $14 billion business, I believe. And you've been called the man with Olympian doodads. Do you look to other industries to get ideas for innovative solutions? You know what? We look at industries all the time, Heather. Um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a firm believer that if we think about it, there are definitely 10 other people who have done it. 
So, um, you know, we, we cannot afford reinventing the wheel each and every time we come up with, let's say, with an idea or with a thought that we would like to experiment with. Um, we tend to look at many, many sectors. Um, I would say the three that pop up on our radar very frequently are the um, design industry, the automotive industry, and the healthcare industry. We learn a lot, a lot about our world and what we can do, what are the possibilities, just by reading about what is done in those areas and interacting with the individuals who are leading the effort there. How do you, Monir, how do you approach developing a technology solution for an athlete? For example, you know, where do you start when doing customer research in order to determine what you need to develop? Um, you know what? There, there is a very standard protocol that that uh, that we follow. It's really inspired by um, by what we can call design thinking. Um, you know, the first step that we always make sure that we achieve is by empathizing with our end users. Our end users are are usually either our athletes and or our coaches. So we need to make sure that we are learning about them. We are learning about, you know, what are their struggles. We're learning about, you know, what moves them. And what is it that they are asking themselves that will help them gain those insights that will eventually help them improve their game by 1%. 1% at the Olympic Games is the difference between a gold medal and no medal at all. Sometimes that 1% could be translated to a very, very small fraction in time that is quicker than blinking your eye. So if you blink, you will miss the gold. Now, once we uh, learn about our users, we try to sort of define and focus all of the questions that we come up with upon the insights that we have gained from that empathy stage. Um, we define our all of our challenges or all of our questions making sure that we're talking the people's language and we're not talking the, the technology language. So we would never frame, let's say, a challenge or we would never tackle a question that would go along the lines of, uh, let's say, how can we get that technology into a training program? But rather, the question would be, how can we help our coach gain let's say, a better understanding regarding what a gymnast is doing? Or how can we help a gymnast um, determine, you know, what would be the ideal training load today given the physiological needs of his bodies or her bodies today. Afterwards, we, we go to what we can call an ideation phase whereby we begin brainstorming or begin coming up with, uh, with, with some solutions that we would like to, uh, to bring up and put on the table without, without really distinguishing among which are sort of which could be good solutions, which could be bad solutions, and we just lay all different possibilities out there on the table. Then we go to what we can call a prototyping stage, whereby uh, we build a very, very simple representation of one or more of, of our ideas that we came up with so that we can show it to our end users and you know, gain um, some, some learning from them, try to understand what do they think about it? You know, does that spark another thought process that we had not tackled in the beginning? And this list leads us to testing out, you know, the ideas that we have, I mean, the prototypes that we have um, come up with. Now, once we get to that stage, we, we repeat the whole process again and again and again until we get to a comfortable level whereby, you know, the ideas that we are putting on the table and the prototypes that we're putting on the table are the ones that will help us make a difference. 
So, you know, we take a very, very uh, concrete human-centered design approach. Um, you would see that term popping up in the conversations that we have all day long, both within the team and uh, with, with our end users. You've talked about the need for sports to view an athlete as a whole versus a collection of parts. So, for example, you know, a dietitian works with an athlete on the right nutrition. A sports psychologist will analyze an athlete's mental state. How does that approach affect your data analysis and product design? How do you determine what information matters? Well, you know what? I always, I always think about an experience that, that I had in, in, in my past. So I used to suffer from, from, uh, from some balance problems. And... Uh, on one hand, I went to the dentist to determine, you know, what, why was that happening, and the dentist prescribed to me a bite that I would put in my mouth. That, that did not work. Then I went to um, a balance specialist or a posturologist who studies human posture, and I was prescribed some insoles that I needed to put in my shoes. And that worked a little bit in the beginning, but it did not really help. But what, what really stood out was that the information that I was getting from these specialists was very specific to that specialist's area of expertise. It was not a solution that tackled mm, the problem taking into consideration myself as a human being who conducts a life and who has got you know all different kinds of dynamics coming into his life. And now when I think about our athletes, you know, I strongly believe that unless we are able to look at our athletes from a holistic perspective, there's no way we can make a difference here. You know, we can look at them as a nutritional uh, challenge. We can look at them as a psychological challenge. We can look at them as a physical challenge. But we will be looking at them through that very, very finite lens that would help us probably treat a symptom of what they're asking us for, but it will never help us treat the cause that is, that is driving those symptoms. So whenever we need to determine, you know, what information matters or what is the approach that we follow, we always ask ourselves three questions. What is the desirable outcome? What is the feasible pathway that we can follow? And is this a viable pathway that we are going to follow? Keeping in mind the human-centered design approach, you know, we cannot lose track of the fact that it is a person's life here who we are trying to influence it is a person who we are trying to help make a better decision, and it is that person who will be under everyone's everyone's eyes whenever the show is on. And we can never lose track of that. So th these are the elements that drive us on a daily basis over here. And considering that, I'm really excited to know, you know, what data do the wearables that you develop look for when they are worn by the athletes? So you think about speed or injury or that sort of thing. Well, you know what? The, the data that we, we are after, Heather, varies a lot from program to program. So one of, one of the great uh, things about working with the U.S. Olympic Committee is that we are working with a multitude of sports and with a multitude of athletes, and all of them are dreaming of you know, the ultimate success at the Olympic and Paralympic Games. Um, some some examples or some snapshots of, let's say, data points that we are after could be, let's say, how quick our athletes are, how consistent is their performance in time, um, if there's a rhythmic element to it, you know, what is the rhythm, what is the natural rhythm of uh, of an athlete, um, you know, and 
If if you think also about this from you know from from more of a bird's eye perspective, the real question that we're trying to answer is, what are the key performance indicators that we can help our athletes and our coaches put their hands on, very easily, that will help them make a better informed decision and that would help the coach tailor and customize the training program to the individual needs of the athlete. So if you think about let, let's take a team sport, which which is quite which is quite challenging. Um, in team sports, you have got let's say up to ten athletes who need to be on the field at the same time, interacting in a way that would optimize their output. Now it's very easy for a coach to come up with one training program, let's say that would standardize training for these ten individuals. There will be an improvement definitely, but that improvement is not as and it's not as significant as improvement that could be obtained if we are able to look at each and every athlete, understand what their needs are, understand how they react to certain training uh, stimuli or certain training programs, and then tailor those to satisfy those needs. Because if we're able to help each one of those 10, imagine that you're an you're, um, you're uh, orchestra conductor and you have got 10 musicians. If you're, if you're able to help each one of those optimize their own performance, then putting them in a symphony is an easier task than trying to push everyone to follow the same standard training protocol. Munir, can you give me some examples of MVPs or prototypes you've built? Sure. Um, I'll give you a couple of examples. Um, One of them comes from uh, diving and the other from, from gymnastics. Um, in diving, um, if you've ever watched dive it, a diver to execute her dive, you would uh, you would notice one how quick and how artistic and how articulate that motion is. You know, diving from the highest highest platform, which is a ten meter platform, to get down to the water, that's not even two seconds. So athletes are training four years, let's say, to get that two perfect second performance. Now, relying on um, on video recording, which has been done for many years to understand, you know, how to improve a diver's performance, is not sufficient anymore. Mostly because with video, it takes a very, very long time to extract the information that would help you make a better call. So uh, when I came on board in 2012, um, just after the London Games, I uh, brought the notion of um, you know, trying to experiment with wearable tech and trying to understand you know, how wearable tech can contribute to the diving program. So we started with, um, you know, with, with, with that idea, and the challenge was how do you convince someone, an athlete, who is going to be diving from a 10-meter platform to put on a a device, no matter how small it is, but it's still a device protruding out of her body, and then hit the water at that very, very high speed that she's going to hit it and still be safe. So um, we had to vet that before we were able to move forward. And one of the very, very early prototypes was just having a very small plastic object put on the on the athlete's body, wrapped up with athletic tape, and just to gain that confidence from the uh, diver that it was okay. It's okay to dive with something on your arm. It's okay to dive with something on your ankle. It's okay to dive with something that is wrapped around your, va- your waist. You're not going to be hurt by that. So, you know, so the very, very first prototype was just getting a small plastic cap and putting it around 
an athlete's wrist. Um, then once we got that, then we began, you know, developing different prototypes that had, you know, technological components in them and electronic components in them. And, um, you know, we, we began running into the challenges that you get once you put electronics in the water in terms of waterproof, especially at very high impact and comfort levels for the athletes and aerodynamic shaping and, and whatnot. The other prototype um, is with gymnastics. So in gymnastics, determining rhythm of, of any gymnast doing any kind of activity is crucial. Um, you know, gymnasts have to be very, very um, skilled on pommel horses, as well as rings, as well as the parallel bars, as well as on the vault, as well as on the floor. So it's, it's quite it's quite a complicated skill set that they need to develop, especially that they need to excel at each one of those. Now, how do you determine the rhythm of, of, of a gymnast? You know, how do you determine that, that if you want that natural rhythm that, that would allow each gymnast to perform at his best? Um, so we, you know, as we began brainstorming different ideas um, around that, we came up with so many, so many different crazy thoughts, you know, starting from, uh, let's say, installing uh, different microphones in a venue that would pick up, let's say, where the gymnast is, and then that would use some very sophisticated algorithms to come up with, you know, uh, let's say the, the numerical code, if you want, that describes what a gymnast does. Two very simple notions, uh, you know, hey, what if we are able to put a very small sensor on the ankle and then, you know, determine the signature of the gymnast um, and then, you know, carry out different experiments over time and and see if there are any patterns there. Um, you know, but, but we tried some of the crazy ideas, but the coaches did not really like them and uh, that they were not very comfortable and uh you know those led us to discover some um some surprises on the way which were we did not account for in the beginning so what one of the surprises was that uh, the coaches even though they were after a solution that would help them time determine rhythm they were after a solution that uh they could travel with that never came up in the beginning um, but once they saw you know how cumbersome it could be um getting that sophisticated microphone system in they said you know what that's even though this could work here in Colorado Springs, it's never going to work for us. I mean, we, we want to take it everywhere we go. And the, the beauty of this is that you know, we did not lose any time pursuing that. And they were not able to express their travel needs until they saw with their eyes, you know, what are some of the potential solutions here. That's the, that's the beauty of, of prototyping. You know, it just allows you to learn. Yeah, you know, you've you've been touching on testing and learning. I, I'd really like to give our listeners some takeaways um, from your process for testing and learning. Um, you see, when we have um, we have over here at the Olympic Training Center various re resident programs. Um, a resident program is a program where we have athletes and coaches living on campus. Um, that is extremely beneficial, especially when you're working with emerging technology or innovative uh, solutions, because you really need that frequent access to your end users. Now, it becomes a little bit challenging once we talk about decentralized programs. So I did mention diving. Um, in diving, we have athletes all over the country. We have some in Florida, we have some in California, we have some in Indianapolis. And it's quite a challenge bringing everyone together. So whenever we think about testing, whenever we think about learning, we need to be mindful of, you know, of how do we 
how do we gain access to our end users in a time period that would allow us not only to develop some learning, but also to iterate on the process and learn more and then learn more and learn more. Um, our process for testing and learning is, is very hard to classify and very hard to categorize um, given the different different natures of the sports. Now, I've been talking about you know these examples coming from the Olympic world, but we have also got lots of uh, Paralympic programs who we work with. And you know, in Paralympic programs, there is another challenge that um, you don't have with the Olympic programs, and that is the let's say the additional machine, whether that's a prosthesis, whether that's a wheelchair, whether that's a seat that the athletes have to you know uh, come down the mountain uh, sitting on. Um, I would say you know one one of the beauties of working with the U.S. Olympic Committee is is really the fact that you get to touch upon so many varieties of high high athletic performance that needs to be optimized to get that you know, squeeze that one percent each and every Olympic cycle. Munir, what are some of the essential elements you look for in the development cycle? Um, you know what? There, there are really three essential elements. It, it, probably, it's a summary of what what we've already talked about. I mean, the first one is making sure that we follow a very thorough human-centered design approach. I mean, we cannot afford losing track of the fact that we are helping people. You know, and I keep telling my team, we're not in the technology business. We're in the people's business. We're just doing technology as a means to get there. The other, um, the other crucial element, I would say, is using using an um, iteration process, whereby rather than um, sitting down in front of computers or in front of papers and trying to forecast what the future looks like and trying to come up with very good presentation um decks that we can present to our leadership and try to get some money and try to convince them that this is going to work no matter what we'd say rather you know what we need to get our hands dirty here we need to get our coaches inside the offices we need to get our athletes inside the offices we need to get our team out of the office and make sure that we're not spending you know more than 50% of our time in here and um that whatever learning we can get from them is more important than whatever technology development we can do. So I stress that you know a combination of human-centered design plus an iterative development approach is is what you know what makes part of the um, daily work over here in the technology group at the U.S. Olympic Committee. Well, we have time for one last question, and I'm curious how your use of lean startup has inspired or helped others at the U.S. Olympic Committee. Uh, you see, Heather, at the U.S. Olympic Committee, where we do have a culture of innovation, you know, we we have a decision-making process that is driven by by results. Um, I believe that uh, you know what probably one of the biggest things that that the lean startup sort of approach has inspired and helped others over here at the U.S. Olympic Committee achieve is that it's okay. You know? It's okay not to get it right from the first time. It's okay to fail. There's no problem in that. But you know what? Let's fail as early as we can so that we make sure that whatever we're working on 
has no wasted element in there and that it's all in focus, um, all focused on contributing to that end user experience. Now, we need to be comfortable with making mistakes. And that, that is probably you know, the biggest inspiration that, um, that the work that we are doing in the technology group and the work that I've done in the past is, um, is helping others see uh, over here at the Olympic Committee. Well, Munir, earlier you mentioned that the athletes you work with are dreaming of the ultimate success at the Olympic Games. And I would guess that some of our listeners are similarly shooting for that ultimate success. Thank you so much for sharing your story with us today and helping them along the way. Thank you, Heather. Thanks to our guest, Monir Zuck. I'm Heather McGough from Lean Startup Company. Our team looks forward to having you join us for upcoming podcasts and webcasts. You can also follow us on Twitter, at Lean Startup, register for our flagship Lean Startup conference, or follow our blog. Visit leanstartup.co for more information.